an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, for Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And you will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now that's just the first five verses of the passage that we're going to look at. <coughs> what I want to do this evening um, is to do an introduction to this. <coughs> and what I've brought, I've brought with me um, a visual aid. And this is my visual aid. We all know what this is, a jigsaw. Okay. Now it's not that we're going to sit around and do the jigsaw as much as you would like to, but this is the illustration. And you know the jigsaw is made up, it's made up of um, pieces and each piece will interlock with the others. And it reveals certain elements that will eventually emerge. And together they become integral parts of what is a bigger picture. And what you find is when you're doing the jigsaw, nothing seems to make sense. Then you see one or two pieces that are starting to build a picture. And all of a sudden you start to realize, maybe it's a cottage. And so you work on this cottage. And as you're putting it together, it always has other bits on the end that are going to interlink with something else. But it's a cottage. And then what the cottage might do, you notice that, oh, it's starting to merge with the sea. And so you start to build on that. So you're building up another picture out of two pictures, and each one is important to the other. And then you might notice, oh, there's bits of sky, and you start to work on the sky. And what you do is you gradually build up this picture. And the full picture, you'll notice it has something which is unique. It has parameters. And you all know that you have to stay within those parameters. And the way you stay within the parameters, if you like me, you find all the straight edges first. And then you put the straight edges together. And <clears> what <throat> happens is that you begin to build the picture inside those parameters. Now, if you take a piece that is not from this picture, even though you think you can fit it in, it might sort of join join in, oh that goes there, that looks okay. But what happens is when you get to the end, you realise that it doesn't look right, it shouldn't be there. And what it's doing, it's not only not fitting to the picture, it's distorting the picture. It's, it's making the picture not look right. And if you take that piece out, then the picture is incomplete because there's something else needs to be there to complete that picture. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because when we come to the Bible, it's right that we should take um, individual things. We should take individual people, individual places, and individual passages that of themselves 
are very important and they're important to us. But the bigger picture is that they are part of the bigger picture. And I'm saying this because we need to get this in our minds as we come to this passage of Malachi. It's not a standalone, I've said this before, it's not a standalone book. It is important. We can learn from it. We can take lessons from it. But it's an integral part of the bigger picture. And to be able to understand it, we have to understand a little bit of what's going on around it. Now, when you, you talk to biblical scholars, this is viewing it in context. Okay? And this book has a big context. Now, when you think about it, every individual part of the Bible, <laughs> the, the overall context is everything within the parameters of what the Bible is. And we know that the Bible can speak for itself. Now, when I say that, I'm just going to share one or two verses that you know very well. You'll understand these verses. You'll probably get them before I read them to you. I'm not going into any great depth, just a few uh, to help us understand how the Bible speaks for itself. So let's just take, first of all, the purpose of the Bible. It has a purpose, right? Verse I thought of, and there's some verses there. 2 Timothy 3, 16, verse 17. You probably recited. All scripture is God-breathed and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the Bible speaking for itself. Okay. What about the protection of the Bible? We need to protect the Bible. And the Bible tells us this. We've just done the book of Revelation. And there's verses in there which are aimed at the book of Revelation, but are also extended to the whole of the Bible. Those verses are one. Uh, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share of the tree of life in the holy city which are described in this scroll. So there's your picture from the jigsaw. You know, that piece that looks right, but it doesn't seem to fit perfectly. All the little, you know, loops fit into the other bits. It fits in from that point of view. But when you look at the big picture, it, it, it should be there. It's been put in. And it's not the complete picture. And that piece should be taken away. <laughs> but no other pieces should be taken away. Because if you do, you distort the picture. You spoil the picture. Okay. What about the parameters of the Bible? So, there's loads of verses here. <coughs> What are the verses that tell us about the importance of the bigger picture? So just to keep it short for this evening, here's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it's four verses, verse 1 to 4. It's Paul speaking. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By the gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you 
as the first as of first importance. Now this is the bit that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the bigger picture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day again according to the scriptures. You can't take that out, you can't add anything to it. If you do, you distort the whole picture. So this evening, what I want us to do is to explore the circumstances that led Malachi to write this book. I want us to know something about the people he's speaking to. I want us to understand why when he spoke to them, he, he, he does it in language that we probably will call conversational language. It's questions and answers and questions and answers. And this is how the book is written. And we need to understand this. We need to understand the people who first received this uh, book of Malachi. We need to understand about why he wrote the way he wrote, as well as understanding the words that he said. So, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. <laughs> now the time between the Old and the New Testament, Malachi and Matthew, there's a period of 400 years. And in that 400 years, God is silent towards his people. He's said what needs to be said. And because of the state of the people, he doesn't actually speak to them. We have that 400 year gap. We're going to visit the 400 years of silence later on when we come to the end of the book of Malachi. Here, in Malachi, and in everything that has gone before in the Old Testament, God's voice has been heard, but mostly it's been ignored. Now, that's the basic reason why this 400 years silence comes in. So we'll look at that as we go through the book and when we get to the end of the book. Now, that's just a little point. When God is silent, it doesn't mean that he's not there. You've got to remember that. We talk about this 400 years silence and you think, where was God? Well, it doesn't mean that God wasn't there. God was there. What was he doing in that period? He was doing what he's been doing all the way through the Old Testament. He's been protecting the faithful remnant of his people as he prepares them to receive the Messiah. God is still at work. Now, remember the book of Esther. You've just been through it, haven't you? And one of the things about Esther, you don't hear the name of God. So you could say that, well, where, where is God? But God is there. How do we know God is there? Because we see God's presence and we see the handiwork of God in the lives of the faithful people. The heart of the Persian king. It's God who, who's directing him. And the international politics of the day, God is at work. Now we see that in the book of Esther. Incidentally, the book of Esther is right here in this period that we're looking at. So that's important. But back to our, let's 
sort of go through some background history that will help us to understand Malachi. Now, we're going to go back quite a far way into the Bible, but I want to bring these things in. You see, these are the pieces of the jigsaw that interlock with the little bits around. You know, there's the cottage. Now, we're going to look at the cottage. But when you look at the cottage in your jigsaw, there's still bits around that other things connect to. And all these things we need to pull in. And we're going to do it this evening. So we're not going to go right through the Old Testament. But we're going to refer to it. And I want you to just take these things on board. So a little bit of history. Ten tribes of Israel known as the Northern Kingdom. They've been taken into exile by the Assyrians. The Assyrians occupied the land. They brought into the land pagan religions and practices. They and the Jews who had not been taken into captivity, probably the older Jewish people who when the Babylonians came, well, there were no interest to them. Maybe the ones living in the country, you know, they only took, you know, the Daniels and, and the good ones and then all the, the main people. And then a lot of the people they wanted as slaves and servants. And when they'd filled that quarter, they left the rest behind. So there were still people there. But then they intermingled with the other Syrians who came in and they basically um, worshipped God in a fashion that God was not meant to be worshipped because they did it alongside the gods of the nations. And these people will become known as the Samaritans. That's where they come from. Who, you know, they said Abraham is our God. But you leave all the other things out. And they were worshipping other gods as well. And you see that when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman as well. But during this time, the Lord protected Jerusalem. This is the southern kingdom of Judah. Why Judah? Because Judah is the line through which the Messiah will come. And when that's all going on in the rest of Israel and Assyrians, Jerusalem is protected. The tribe of Judah is protected. But later, the, the, the Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Okay. The period that we're looking at is the end of the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. Those who had been taken into captivity had been there for 70 years and now they're coming back to their land. The prophet Malachi. Okay, now this is why I say we've got to look at the surrounding things to this book because Malachi stands side by side with Haggai, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zechariah. They are known as the post-exile <clears throat> prophets. So they are all related in as much as this is the period that they were active. It's not just Malachi on his own, it's not just Haggai on his own, it's not just Nehemiah on his own, or Ezra, or Zechariah, and we do look at those books individually, we should. But when we're looking at this period, we have to refer to all of them to understand what's happening so that we know why Malachi says what he has to say. And in other words, really, it's not just um, it's not Malachi, it's God speaking through Malachi. And he's speaking to the people. I see it a little bit as a last chance to hear. 
because my plan is going to go ahead. I've spoken to you. I've given you the prophets. I've said all I, I can say. And now I'm going to prepare for the coming of the Messiah so that the people will be ready. And the first one to come will be a prophet, John the Baptist. He's like the, the, the last prophet, not Malachi. As John the Baptist comes. So you see that and you're starting to see the picture there. Now, just to say Belshazzar, we know all about Belshazzar, Belshazzar don't we? Book of Daniel, right? was on the wall, you know. Now, Belshazzar was the king of Babylon when Cyrus the Persian took over the land. So the whole land of Babylon became the property of the Medo-Persian Empire. So that's what we're looking at here. So Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to just read verse 3, and uh, we'll start to put this together. So, Nebuchadnezzar, um, yeah, it is Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, Belshazzar. Belshazzar has now been defeated, and Cyrus has taken over. And Cyrus, in, let's look at, well, let's not look at all these chapters, we'll just look at a little bit. It says that Ezra chapters 1 through to 3, Cyrus helps the exiles, those who've been freed from Babylon. He helps them with a task, and the task is to go back to Jerusalem, to their land, and to rebuild the temple. And Ezra, in those chapters, chapters records a list of all the people who went, and the numbers and the tribes that they were from, you know, the families, that's all recorded. And when we come to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm, and also to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Any of his people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality, where survivors, you know, we said that, where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, we know that Cyrus gave this edict. We also know that many of the Jews chose to remain in Persia, which was called Babylon, now it's Persia. And they chose to remain there, such as the ancestors of who? Mordecai and Esther. Mm. Yeah, see where it comes in? They remained in Susa, in Persia. And while they were there and that was going on there, the other Jews had gone to Jerusalem. And Ezra names all of those who went. You will find the name of Mordecai, but it's not Mordecai, it's one of Mordecai's relatives more than likely because it's just a slightly different uh, time thing. You, you get a lot of this. Um, you, you'll see uh, another Joshua, but it's not Joshua from Joshua or the Battle of Jericho. 
who very often have you know, similar names. We have to identify this. But those who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they faced opposition. Now we read about that in Esther chapter 4. And the work came to a standstill. You might ask, where did the opposition come from? Well, the people we referred to earlier, who are known as the Samaritans, the ones who occupied the vacated land that was vacated by the Assyrians, annihilation of the northern kingdom of Israel. So, Esther chapter 5 through to 6, the decree of Darius is confirmed, the opposition is removed, the work resumes, and the temple is eventually completed. Right, you're getting the picture now. You're building up this picture on a jigsaw that's surrounding the group of Malachi. Esther 5, verse 1 to 2. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet. Now, you see where these are interlocking? These prophets are side by side in a similar period. And we've got the full picture here when we look at all the prophets, and we're just very quickly going through some of them to help us understand this group of Malachi. So Ezra 5, verse 1 and 2. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shelti, and Joshua, not Joshua in the battle of Jericho, this is Joshua, the son of Josedach, they set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Get that? See the relationship between the prophets, like we said at the beginning? Ezra chapter 7 through to 8. Ezra uh, returns to Jerusalem. He's already taken people, he's gone back. Now he's returning to Jerusalem and he's bringing with him treasures, treasures that have been given to him by the Persian king and they are to be the treasures that will fill the temple. Some of them would have been the original ones that the Babylonians took. Some would have been melted down for the gold. But some would have still been there. And so these treasures were brought by Ezra so they could um, be put into this rebuilt temple. And, and when he gets there, the people have been unfaithful. You know, it, this is what was happening. Just as we get, as we said at the beginning, right through the Old Testament, the people are constantly being unfaithful to God, and God is speaking to them. He's sending the prophets. He's, he's directing them. He's protecting them. And a lot of the time, they're not listening. They're ignoring him. Ezra 9, uh, verse 1 to 2. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, haven't kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples, with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons have mingled the holy race with the people around them and the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now get that, that's important when we come to Malachi. And we, we hear what he has to say. And we listen to what they have to say back to Malachi. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through Malachi. And the leaders and officials have led the way 
in this unfaithfulness. You know, there's a message there for us today, but we won't go into that this evening, but we will as we go through the book of Malachi. So Ezra in chapters 9 and 10 reprimands the people as he reminds them of their guilt and of God's grace towards them. And he reminds them they are the remnants, the important remnants of Judah, because that's the line the Messiah will come. And he's being God has been protecting them. And so Ezra reminds them of this and, and starts to bring them back together. Now, the book of Nehemiah, see? See how all these prophets are together in, in this? The book of Nehemiah, as Ezra closes, the book of Nehemiah opens with these words, these words. The words of Nehemiah, son of Akali, in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Susa, who was in Susa? Mordecai and Esther, not in this period, but they will be shortly. Anyway, one of the of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, "Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace." The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And this is now his prayer, Nehemiah's prayer. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. He knows who God is. With those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. You see the way he he's a good man. He's faithful to God. He's concerned about God's people, but he identifies with them as him also being a sinner against God. Great lessons here for us. We're not even into the book of Malachi, but we're learning these things that surround the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi, uh, to Nehemiah, who we just read from, he was the cupbearer way back in Susa to Artaxerxes. You can, it's great, you know, I've been through all these kings in order and the dynasty. It's a good, I'm not going to bore you with it now or confuse you. It's really good to see how they all fit in. And he goes to this, to King Xerxes, and he says this, and notice the language, how he approaches him. Remember how Esther approaches the king. This is exactly how um, he approaches the king. He says, this is Nehemiah 2. If it please the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. That was his request. And he was granted that request. Nehemiah chapters 3 and 11. He goes, he becomes governor. They build the walls against great opposition. He helps the poor during the troubled times because they're, they're suffering. 
Ezra, see them interlocking again, these prophets. Ezra reads the law to the people. The Israelites confess their sins. The wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt and is dedicated to the Lord. And in Nehemiah chapter 12, we read this in verse 47. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites. And the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. This is just like the judges, isn't it? Up and down. One minute, they're praising God. Next minute, they're not. Then God sends them somebody to bring them together. And then they all move away again. Same thing happening. The same pattern. And at this point, everything's going well. But Nehemiah, partway through his governorship, remember he's the cupbearer to King Xerxes, is called back to, it says Shushan, that's Susa. We already know that because we've referred to it before. And while he was away, things in Jerusalem fell apart, just like in the book of Judges. And when he returns some years later, it is about 16 years later, he finds that things have changed for the worst. The temple had been desecrated. Who by? The priests. By the head priest. Those who were supposed to be leading the people. They had desecrated the temple. Nehemiah 13, verse 6 and 9. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. But in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. It says king of Babylon there. He's actually king of Persia, but Babylon is still a city. So he's in Babylon. It's now called um, Susa, but it's still known sometimes as Babylon. That was the old name. We have it, don't we? We change names of countries. I always remember Ceylon. I forget now what Ceylon is called, but it's still that same country. But uh, there you go. And he says, the king of Babylon, I had returned to the king sometime later, and I asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem. <coughs> Here I learned about the evil things Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offering and the incense. See what's happened here. While he's been away, they've desecrated the temple. They've given a room. They've cleared the temple stuff out of a room in the temple and they've given it to someone who is not even a Jew. And this is just desecrating the temple. Nehemiah 13, verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Do you remember what Jesus did when he went into the temple and found this same thing going on? He overturned the tables. The temple was being desecrated even when Jesus walked this earth. And it was being desecrated here. And in Nehemiah, Verse 22, you can read the whole chapters here. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
And then going back in to the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, 24. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the languages of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. That's how bad things had gone. Nehemiah 13, 29. This is Nehemiah praying again. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Now, if you read those whole chapters, you see the fullness of We've just referred to our verses to get the picture of what was happening. The prophet Malachi more than likely occurred sometime in this period. We're not exactly sure when, but it could have been after Nehemiah's departure and before his second visit. Okay? That could have been the period. So we've looked at all those things that are affecting the days in which Malachi is going to prophesy. And I think it's important that we understand all this. Like I said at the beginning, the jigsaw. This is like the, the cottage on the, uh, the portion now. This is like the cottage, which is of itself important. But when you look at it, there's still other things around it. And when you look at the edges, you say, oh, that joins to the river. Oh, that one joins to the sky. Now we're needing to see all these joints that put to you know bring us into the days of Malachi. And when we do that, we can go into this booth knowing all this and knowing what he said, why he said, and how he said it. Ezra, Nehemiah were encouraging the people to turn to God. They reminded them that they were his covenant people telling them how to worship God in the temple, the temple that had been rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by the new walls. Malachi came, right? To reassure the people of Judah of the love that God had for them. They were his chosen people. The priests who were supposed to lead the people had failed. And because of it, the whole nation in this period had lost hope. They had become corrupt. And the sad thing is that they couldn't see it. Again, we can look at this in our day. It's all there. They were constantly reminded. They were taught the right things. They were led in the right direction. But they failed. And when things were explained to them, they couldn't see it. They had excuses. They had reasons. Are you a Christian? Yes. Well, why don't you do that? Because God doesn't want me to do that. No, it's okay. Don't worry. You'll be all right. Society's different now. That's what we're here up against that one. So you begin to see the reason for Malachi, the, the, the effect on the people of his day, and also some of the lessons that we're going to draw from it as we go through together. Let me just finish by reading 
those first five verses from Malachi that we read before. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? And God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Will you pray for us? Father, we pray that we would uh, uh, see you through this series and be reminded of our need of you. Lord, as we see and consider the history of Israel through the years and the challenges and the trials that they faced, and Lord, we see in ourselves as well in our own time the temptation to uh, set aside your ways and to um, go a, a different way, a wrong way. Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, help us again to see uh, the value of who you are and the importance of holding true to your word. And Lord, that we'd be encouraged as we go through these, this series to, uh, to live our lives for your glory without wavering. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.